there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? Got a big episode today. Finally, Plymouth Argyle will be covered. I'm Chris Skoll. At last. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, but you needed saying. I'm back. (laughs) Look who's come crawling back as Josh Widdicombe. While I've been away, I've forgotten the grammar of the intro. I've <laughs> <laughs> been doing it for seven years. Yeah. Bit of a rude intro, but nonetheless, thank you to David Finlayson. Just back from a wank, it's Lauren LeBlanc. He's immediately followed that up with Stop Being So Crass, Steve Lomas. It'd be a wonk as well, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what about Wim Yonk? Do you remember Wim Yonk? Yeah, that was it. Chef of Wednesday had a bunch of weird names, didn't they? Well, I don't think that's weird so much as foreign, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's never been another Wim, has there? Or a Yonk. Wim Janssen? Was he the manager of Celtic? I think there's quite a lot of Wims. Is there? But anyway. Yeah, Wim Kieft, was that someone? Who the fuck is Wim Kieft? <laughs> I think I had him as a sticker. I'm going to say, as a, th- as a three, we might be a touch rusty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just, just, just listing fictional Wims. No, he's real. He played for Holland between 1981 and 1993, 43 times, Wim Kieft. I've only got Wim Wenders, the film director. Wim Wenders. There's lots of Wims. And obviously it is a thing on a whim to do something on a whim. I feel like I'm Susie Dent now. Just to add to my, <laughs> I feel like Sheffield Wednesday had weird names in the mid-90s. Chris Waddle, they had Waddle. Wim Yonk. This is, this is a week. Before I get to Reggie Blinker, should we just move on? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Reggie Blinker is, a, is an interesting <laughs> name. I think that's fair enough. <laughs> Let's have some correspondence. Boy, I tell you what, Josh, I know you've been listening to recent episodes and no doubt you've heard what I consider to be one of the all time great, do I remember this right, that has lit up for the nation. One listener chipped in that they recalled Terry Venables in the aftermath of Manchester United winning the Champions League in 99, dropping a C-bomb live on ITV. Yeah. Do you remember it? Well, yeah, I'm aware. Where's this resolved to? Well, 
Following this, we had an outpouring from the nation of people who also remembered Terry Venables dropping that infamous C-bomb. And we put a call out. We said, if anyone's got footage of this, please send it in. Thank you to John Neve. I've got it. John Neve recorded the whole match on a VHS. He's just had it converted to MP4 format and he's clipped it up for us. I'm going to send it to you now. I've listened to it. It's interesting. Oh, no. It's interesting. Oh. So have a listen. The thing is, firstly, how astonishing is it that a listener has found it? He calls it the, the quickly Kevin Zapruder film. I hate to bite the hand that feeds us. I would love the 10 seconds before. <laughs> Just to give some... Because co- we go right in on it. Do you know what I mean? What's he saying is a lucky cunt? He's saying Hitzfeld, Otmar Hitzfeld, yeah. is I think he's saying a lucky coat. But it doesn't make sense. What? Why would he say he's got a lucky coat? Is it? The rumor, it makes sense that he's going, Hitzfeld is a lucky cunt. But it sounds like Hitzfeld is a lucky cunt. No, why? He's lost. Oh, Michael, chip in on this. What are you saying? Well, I now that you've said coat, that's all I can hear. I'm, I'm with Josh. I sort of need to hear more context. Was he wearing a coat they had discussed earlier in the broadcast that was sort of his lucky coat i don't understand it doesn't make sense that Garatti doesn't make sense and do you think he knows he's on air again you need the 10 seconds beforehand let's hear it one more time i don't know it's like, it's like one of those um things that get shared where whatever word you're looking at is what you'll hear have you ever <laughs> seen those like the, the brain will trick you i, I think you're overlooking that why would he say Hitzfeld is a lucky cunt if he's just been unlucky? Well, again, the 10 seconds beforehand might reveal, but he could be talking about the first goal, the fact they were in that position. No, because they've just shown the winning goal. But then similarly, why would he say Hitzfeld is a lucky coat for any reason whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to send you a link to a tweet because I've just Googled Hitzfeld and lucky. Why have you not Googled coat? You're four letters away from the full house. <laughs> so it's come up with a tweet from someone called Stan Chow, Stanley Chow, May 2015, that says, am I right in remembering that Terry Venables called buying useless cunts live on TV after hashtag MUFC beat them in 99 final? I can't see the responses, but one of them must refer to Hitzfeld for it to bring that up. Let's have a look. God, I feel like we're doing a proper investigation here. You're right. You've stumbled this great investigative work. We've stumbled on a tweet from 2015. People have replied saying he was calling Otmar Hitzfeld a lucky cunt, but nobody seems to remember apart from us. He says, wow, this is great digital archaeology here. It's weird to think that eight years ago, this same conversation was going on. Maybe I don't know enough about Otmar Hitzfeld, but he'd won the Champions League with Dortmund or something, hadn't he, before. Maybe... They'd had a discussion beforehand about Hitzfeld being lucky. And Venables has gone, I thought Hitzfeld was a lucky cunt, but then this <laughs> happens. Let's hear it again. Just one more time. 
<laughs> it's definitely coat. Hitzfeld is hundred percent Hitzfeld. No, it's hundred percent Hitzfeld. No, it's, it's kind of, whoever that person that goes, yeah, 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 yeah. So say that person, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, I think Rude Hullet has said Hitzfeld is a lucky. I doubt he said cunt, but I think beforehand <laughs> he said Hitzfeld's lucky. Neither that the break or while the game was going on, because. Hullet's like, yeah, 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 all right, Terry, you got me there. <laughs> like, I think he's gone. You told me Israel was a lucky cunt, and now you've got egg on your face. I think that's the context, essentially. Yeah, I, I think whoever sent that clip, if they could send us, you know, a couple of minutes prior to that. There's in that tweet you sent, Josh, below the line, there is another the guy who posted the original tweet says Hullet also gets in on the act during the, the same clip by saying Bayern was shit. So I think oh, they really? probably Do we need to listen to the full twenty five. They didn't know that they were throwing back to the studio. Interesting. You would have thought, I mean, John Neve has sent this email in with the subject title, Terry Venable's Case Closed. If anything, the waters have never been so muddy. Yeah, well, I look forward to hearing how it plays out. Have you got anything else? Or is that just taking away from everything? Do you know what? It's been a, it's been a great week for emails. And I want to shout out Robin Bates, who's been, who said, I'm just going to go into it. Hi, Chris, Josh, Michael, huge fan of Quickly Kevin. Been going back, listening through old episodes. I'm also a historian. And while doing my re- own research by looking through late 19th century newspapers, thought I'd take a break by seeing if I could find anything on Steve Bruce's career as a crime writer. My searches did not yield as many hits as I had hoped, but they did turn up a couple of pieces from the Huddersfield Daily Examiner and the Manchester Evening News regarding the publication of Stryker in 1999. There's plenty of choice passages from the Huddersfield paper. Reggie Sharp, managing editor of Paragon Press, saying that Steve Bruce could do for football novels what Dick Francis did for horse racing novels. Brackets, I don't know either. Dick Francis was... A huge, each year, I know this because my mum would get them. Dick Francis was the jockey on, what was that horse called, that was winning the Grand National and then tripped over. Oh. Devon Locke. Wow. So Devon Locke was winning the Grand National, had finished all the fences, and then fell on the final straight on the flat and was beaten. Dick Francis was the jockey, and then Dick Francis became a best-selling author of mysteries maybe murder mysteries all based in the horse racing world very similar to bruce (laughs) (laughs) i'm going to read you a bit this is brilliant this is from the huddersfield daily examiner for thursday december 16th 1999 murder mystery sets a new goal for bruce steve bruce has had team problems with injuries as he has taken huddersfield town to the top of the first division but at least he has never found a dead striker in the locker room and been accused of his murder It's no time to start singing. We're on our way to the premiership. I had quite literally been caught red-handed, Steve says. Steve Barnes, that is, manager of First Division promotion chasing Leddesford United. Bruce, on the other hand, has been caught red-handed going one step further. Have they got Leddesford Town wrong? Oh, it's Leddesford Town. Yes, you're right. Striker is a 30,000-word novel of murder and mystery. 30,000-word novel? What a way to refer to it. 
It's a 30,000 word novel of murder and mystery set in the world of soccer. The similarities are, well, striking. Steve Bruce and Steve Barnes, Huddersfield Town and Leddersford United, and a cover showing a dead and blood-stained player in a town shirt at the McAlpine Stadium. The rest of the country will get the same cover, but the shirt will be red and white. That's not true, is it? I've only ever seen it blue and white. Yeah, well, maybe we've got the original pressings. Maybe the, the rest of the country never got it. Just so you know on the 30,000 thing, a book tends to be what they're looking for is 80,000. <laughs> All I can think is that if Bruce had fulfilled a major publisher word count, think how many episodes we'd have got out. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't even be through the first book. Because <laughs> no. essentially the three, the trilogy is, makes up about a book's worth of words good lord wouldn't it be brilliant if all three were the same story and one murder kind of went into the next i mean that's how a, a half decent author would have written it managing editor of publisher paragon press reggie sharp says we were going to have a red shirt like manchester united but the printer pointed out that blood would not show up very well <laughs> <laughs> all the way to the printer before they realised that. Amazing. Paragon Press. Yeah, Paragon Press. Have I talked about Steve Bruce so much that that, that now feels like a major publisher? <laughs> it's definitely not, because I've looked into them to try and get the rights to it. Yeah. In my head, I've heard it so many times. I was like, oh, I didn't know it was with Paragon Press. They're quite good, aren't they? But I've just heard it so many times when we're discussing this. Have we got time for one final quick one? Very quick. Stuart Freed's been on. Ivo was mentioning Fitz Hall and whether he had a central defensive partner called One Size. Off that, Stuart Freed's been in touch to say the back four of his beloved Charlton during their Premier League run, several times they fielded a back four of Luke Young, Mark Fish, George Costa and Jonathan Fortune, which meant the back four was Young Fish Costa Fortune. No. <laughs> Luke Young, Mark Fish, George Costa, Jonathan Fortune. If you can you make a sentence out of a series of players that played for you in the nineties, we'd love to know. Yeah, or you could make a full eleven, but they're in the right positions and they read as a sentence from goalkeeper oh, up to striker. Oh, that is a challenge. Right. That is a challenge people will definitely yeah. take on. And we're not taking Schmeichel to mean Michael. Seaman, Seaman's a good start. Anyway. <laughs> if you want to have a go at that or anything else. If you've got more on Terry Venable swearing at the 1999 Champions League final, here's how you can get in touch with the show. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. All right, you're about to hear the Plymouth Argyle episode with Matt Tiller. This was a lot of fun. It's brilliant, actually. I love hearing, with all due respect, about smaller clubs in the 90s. If you want more of this episode, if you want it ad-free, if you want next week's episode, plus two bonus episodes every month, plus, not on a wink, tickets to a future Quickly Kevin live show, you can join the Quickly Kevin fan club. Yes, you need to get in there now. Get, get in there now, because it's very, very soon there's going to be an announcement. If you want to sign up, you can go to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin, or you can subscribe to the Quickly Kevin fan club on Apple Podcasts. Just go to the Quickly Kevin show on your Apple Podcast app. All right, here we go. Plymouth Argyle episode coming right up with Matt Tiller.
Matt Tiller, author and more importantly, Plymouth Argyle fan. Welcome. Thank you, Josh. So, I've, I've dreamed of this episode. I and know. finally I can unite all the anecdotes I've told into one easily digestible hour. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it thinks I, I'm, I am, yeah, I hate to admit it, but I'm very slightly older than you. Yeah, so you've still got some 80s stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's when I started. Yeah, that's yeah. when my, my long flirtation with Argyle began. Well, it's, it actually goes back further, because anyone who has seen the video of this on Instagram or the image will know that you are sat next to the largest self-promotional banner we've ever dealt with. with. <laughs> I know, but it, it covers up a multitude of sins behind me. Basically, a metal right, bed. Okay. Yeah, it's acoustically you need it, right? <laughs> That's what it's for. Yeah. And so you've written the book, "The Lion Who Never Roared," about Jack Leslie. Obviously, Chris is a West Ham fan, so this unites us. Another way that this episode has been crowbarred in because it's appeal to my West Ham loving nature. It's got Plymouth Argyle in. <laughs> Jack Leslie's the man who brought Plymouth and West Ham together. It is beautiful because although Jack never played for West Ham, he did play against them, honours even, by the way, he did actually spend longer working for West Ham in the boot room than he did playing for Argyle. He is he is a West Ham legend as well and being embraced by them, which is lovely. Um, for people who don't know who Jack Leslie is... Can we just have a... I was going to say the elevator pitch. That's quite a weird way of describing someone. But let's have the elevator pitch for Jack Leslie. Jack Leslie, East London lad, who was lured to the mighty Plymouth Argyle. Why wouldn't you be? In 1921, played for us until 1934, scored 137 goals in 400 appearances. Which is very good in those days. There's a very high score, and he's not, he wasn't a central striker, was he? No, well, he began on the left wing, and then it took him a little while to, um, and he did score goals from the left wing when he was an amateur at Barking Town, mm. but he found his position uh, inside left, because they used to play like 2-3-5. So really, he should have scored more if you're playing 2-3-5. <laughs> 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 That's what I'm saying. Yeah, his goal scoring record at whatever it was, 0.57 a game or something like that is terrible. No, uh, he was uh, essentially a number 10. I think he made mm. as many goals as he scored. He was a mighty, mighty player. Obviously, I've read a lot of match reports and um, he was everywhere on the pitch. He would sometimes get <laughs> criticised for kind of almost like falling back too much because in those days, forwards like were just really. expected to stay up and hang around and. But if things weren't going our way, he'd be falling back. Quite often, a player would get dragged off. In those days, if you were to leave the yeah, pitch, yeah. you'd either have to be <laughs> actually dead or lose the yeah, use yeah. of a leg. Um, but that did happen like twice against Spurs. And the reports say that he would sort of um, fill the role of two men falling back, mm. breaking up attack. He once, at White Hart Lane, got a standing ovation by the Spurs fans for his performance. To get a nil-nil when nil both nil. teams are so playing 2 0 five is fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must have been a terrible game, but no, apparently he played a, an immense, immense game. So the Spurs fans come out of it with more credit than the team. The yeah, team were clearly yeah. um, violent psychopaths. Obviously, there's something also, the key kind of moment in his career, Would you? or is that... I don't think that is hiding the kind... That's doing him a disservice. Is that he gets called up for England and then he kind of gets uncalled up for England, basically, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, that's what he's well known for now. And rightly so. It's a terrible story. In 1925, he was selected 
for England um, in the England team to play Ireland. He was named as one of the reserves to travel. Only 13 players named in that England side, mm. as was, was the case back then. In the whole squad? Yeah, yeah. Basically, you'd have 13 players, 11 and two would go in case anything untoward happened, yeah. which, which often did. But also, more importantly, being in that position meant you were part of the England setup. And yeah. if you were reserved to travel, you would go on and win an England cap. That's essentially yeah. what would happen. And it had happened to other Argyle players, unbelievably, before then. Uh, yeah, he was called up, named in the press. He was brought into his manager's office. It was a, it was out of the blue for him because he was a young sort of emerging player. He'd been, you know, a regular for a, a sort of season or two, but was really making a name for himself. And manager, can you imagine, like, your, your manager calls you in, and this is like your father figure, essentially, you know, yeah. your Fergie of the day, Bob Jack for Plymouth, calling you in and going, listen, Jack, you've, you've been picked for England. It was immense... And so, you know, yeah. he said the whole town was going nuts. It was Plymouth. You can just imagine what it was like. Yeah, yeah. And then within two weeks, he hadn't heard anything. It's like, what's going on? What's, what's the travel plans? And two weeks later, a new team was, was announced. The FA had a second meeting. He was no longer in the team. He told the story later on. He was interviewed by the Mail and said the FA had come to have a second look at him, not at me football, but at my face. I mean, it's, it's more complicated than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's because he was black basically yeah would. we haven't said that but there's a picture behind me but he's um <laughs> so he would have been england's first black player but then they basically dropped him and when he spoke to the daily mail they actually just supported the decision i imagine <laughs> they, they doubled down yeah, no they were very much yes no this is very understandable no one thing that's very odd is that the mail come out of this they're quite crucial in the whole story and oh right. i i refuse to promote this book if that's the case matt <laughs> Too late. I've no, already got a quote from you on the on the dust. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've got a question on it. Why was he playing for Plymouth? Good question, and one I asked myself when I first heard the story. I <laughs> yeah, thought he sounds quite good. Yeah, yeah it's a bit <laughs> weird. That's the main issue I've got with the story. <laughs> Back then, he was very well known on the London because he played for Barking Town. They played in the London League and Essex League, and they were with, mm. he was in the papers all the time for his exploits. Apparently. The London clubs were after him, Spurs, Chelsea, West Ham. Bob Jack, the Plymouth manager, came to this cup final. We were playing Dulwich Hamlet and we, and we, Barking Town, won. And were Dulwich Hamlet in those days full of kind of East London scenesters or was it a very different club to uh, what it is now? I, I imagine it was slightly different. <laughs> it's my nearest club, but yes, yeah. it is. I find that a bit, I shouldn't say that because it'd be nice to them, but yeah, yes, it is a bit hipster-esque. But um. Bob Jack was there and then afterwards he went to Jack Leslie's home and showed him sunny postcards. Postcards of a sunny Plymouth seafront. Wow. And apparently Jack's parents were like, this looks amazing. It's a paradise down there. <laughs> Have you ever been to Home Park? Yeah, it's not like that all the time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And also, the wages were effectively the same. I mean, as a young player, he wouldn't have been on the maximum wage, but apparently Plymouth offered him 10 shillings a week more than other clubs. They were signing some big players. They had, like a future England captain in Jack Hill. They had Bob Jack's son, David Jack, who was a, a real celebrity. But it was Sammy Black playing for them at that time? Sammy Black got signed later, sort of 1924. Right. And he was a complete unknown as well. And he used to play... Is, am I right in saying he used to play with a cigarette behind his ear? Yes, yeah, yeah. Sammy Black, <laughs> Sammy Black was a, a catalyst to Jack's career because Sammy Black was a left winger from Scotland. Kirk and Tillock, Rob Roy were his team. Love that name. It's it a swashbuckling yeah. name, and he was that kind of player. And when he came into the left wing, and Jack was at inside left, they formed this partnership that that became famous across the land. They were talked of in the same breath. They were phenomenal players, and other clubs did try and come in for them and and offer Plymouth big money. But the management and directors just said no, and they had no power. How does that feel as an outsider, Skull? Because obviously, that to me feels like how football should be. I don't know, really. I find my I find it so hard to wrap my head around nineteen twenties football, like the formations they're playing, and then obviously there's no footage of it. So imagine there's no footage of Jack Leslie playing football, and sadly there's no footage of Jack playing. There is some footage of of games from back then. It's infuriating that I found the only Argyle footage I found was a tiny clip just before. Jack was a regular and then this amazing film from the training pitch and Sammy Black's in it and and from I think 1936 and they're all sort of lined up and it's quite sweet but yeah I mean it was it was rough basically (laughs) really what would the attendances be like at home park in the 20s I mean like today it's it's fickle but um what was amazing was that even when he was playing for Barking in that cup final against Dulwich Hamlet there were 15,000 people wow (laughs) <laughs> and and even at regular games, there'd be, you know, several thousand. And even when Jack was playing in the reserves for Argyle when he started, five, six, seven, eight thousand people. I mean, I've been to what? Home Park where it was less than that for the first team. <laughs> That's mad. Although the, the gates would vary from the start of the season, the excitement, you know, depending on who we were playing, 30 odd thousand. 30. When we went up in the first game... In 1930, the first game was against Everton. They obviously had big players like Dixie Dean. And it was... as But then it would plummet. As soon as it looked like we were heading for mid-table obscurity, it would be yeah. six, seven, eight thousand. Well, you're competing with the glorious weather, aren't you? Everyone would be down the beach. <laughs> We've all seen the postcards. 
there's lots of pictures of of, of Jack sort of on on the beach and uh, and on Dartmoor and stuff, having a nice time. And what's the feeling about him at West Ham, Scott? Is he? Well, I think he was he was much loved. I know. I was actually chatting yesterday with Brian Deere, who was a former striker of ours, who was in the won the Cup Winners' Cup in uh, 1965. And uh, yeah, everyone has seemed to have fond memories of him. He was a he was a massive part of the club for a long time. He was there years and years, wasn't he? He, he was there throughout the kind of the 60s pomp and the 67 to 82 because we weren't sure exactly 82. when he started. And then we met Trevor Brooking. And he immediately said, oh, yeah, I remember, Jack, 67 to 82. I was going, At last, we've got the date confirmed. And it was so just after <laughs> so you had you know, Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters and then Trevor Brooking and Clive Best. It was nuts. In many ways, 1967 is you've really missed the peak of West Ham when you yeah, joined you 1967. Have. Obviously, winning the World <laughs> Cup the year before. <laughs> they, they really needed help with their boots, though. But um, it was... Yeah. It's all, yeah, because I mean, he was working up to that point. I mean, when he was playing for Barking, he was a boilermaker. He was an apprentice at Beckton Gasworks with his dad. And then later yeah. he had to go back to that tough job in the docks. He was delighted to get back into football at West Ham and it gave him a new lease of life. You know, he smoked all his life, but I think that job at West Ham helped to keep him going. Did he yeah. die while he was at West Ham? He was there till 82, so he would have been 80, 81. And then... He moved out to Kent and had a final few years. He died in 1988. Just to paint a picture of what West Ham was like in the 60s, I was chatting to uh, Brian D yesterday, our, our old striker, and he said, what used to happen frequently, if the team had won a big game, the chairman would come down to the dressing room and go, well done, lads, fantastic stuff. We're the same again next week. And the chairman would turn the lights off to save on the electricity bill as he left. <laughs> Because you kind of think like West Ham since that winning a European Cup in '65, the FA Cup '64, like the Bobby Moore big stars. You think of the, you kind of imagine it's quite a professional kind of outfit. But then then you got the chairman popping down, turning off the lights on the place, still getting dressed to save a few quid. Because he's he's thinking about the win bonuses, isn't he? <laughs> well, let's move on to the '90s. When did you start going to Argyle? Well, I, I grew up in Plymouth, but my parents weren't really football people. Um, my dad was down there because he was in the army and. Um, at school, I, I actually, because I was young at that time, I was a, a Liverpool fan. But then it was school friends who were going to Argyle. And I think the cup run of 84, we got to the semi-finals. And obviously that was, you know, massive news in, in the city. So I think that really caught my attention. And my mate Ash, who um, has since gone in a different direction. Ash is now a performance poet called Ash the Destroyer in Totnes. But he was a committed <laughs> Argyle fan in, in the 80s. And we went together and we, I think the first season I had a season ticket was 85-86, which was a glorious time. We got promoted. And what was Home Park, describe Home Park as a ground when you started going? The main things I can remember is a, a, essentially a shack. It was a, a lot of corrugated iron <laughs> and a man stood with a very red face just repeatedly shouting at our players to kick him yeah. in the sack. Was that guy Noddy? I don't know, but it was just... it was. I remember his red hair and a red face and extremely angry that our players were not committing assault on the other players' oh, uh, God, genitals. Because yeah. I've just remembered there was a... This shows you what a small club, I suppose, Argyle. So they were in the equivalent of the now championship when I started supporting them. But there was one fan called Noddy who used to shout Green Army on his own. He'd be stood at the front of the of one of the more kind of sedate terraces and he'd shout Green Army the whole time. And then everyone knew him as Noddy. 
And then at the end of each year, he'd win Supporter of the Year and he'd run around the pitch with a trophy. And I think there's now a picture of him up at Home Park. There's all pictures of legendary players and then there's a picture of Noddy. Do you have any memories of him? I, I don't really, I mean, I, I'm very aware of Noddy and other famous fans like Umbrella Vi, an old lady all dressed in green with a green, you know, Argyle umbrella. That's a fucking club, that is. It's quite a thing unique to the past, I think, where you would have fans who are real characters. I don't know if that goes on anymore. You'd have the topless bloke at Newcastle. Do you remember him? The guy at Portsmouth who always has his shirt off with a bell. Yeah. I, that's it. I just suppose football's too big now. They'd just get lost, wouldn't they? Did the all-seater stadiums kill the... <laughs> the... Kill the character. I'd be furious if someone had an umbrella up in front of me. Was she on the terraces? The gates would have been much lower then, so it was less of an issue. No, 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 not through the gates. I mean, but that's a good point, getting through the gates. But... No, I mean, I mean the size of the crowd. Oh, right, sorry, I thought you meant the turnstiles. <laughs> umbrella Vi struggling through the gates because she refused to collapse her umbrella because that would be bad luck and put a hex on her. She must have missed an entire season because she couldn't squeeze it through. <laughs> that's actually one thing, it just... We've spoken about so many evocative things about old football grounds, but that's one thing I miss. The gate, you know, the turnstile, a little old lady behind the turnstile is one thing I miss. This robotic thing of scanning a card. We've lost something. It is disappointing in that sense. It's. I remember a call-in to a Danny Baker radio show where someone had, and it was at Home Park, bizarrely, he'd found an empty turnstile and he'd gone in and just taken a couple of hundred quid and then gone into the match. There was an empty turnstile, so he just sat down, started taking cash and just letting people in, kept the money, and then just went into the match. So he happily rung into Danny Baker and said, I've I've committed fraud against my own club. What a great <laughs> fan I am. But I think it's one of the... You know one of those ones where someone commits a crime, but it's so audacious... You, you're on their side. <laughs> like those people that stole the diamond from the Millennium Dome. Do you know what I mean? You're like, you know what? Fair enough. I become friends with this 97-year-old Argyle fan who saw Jack, Leslie and Sammy Black play and he said they used to sneak under, yeah. under the gates to get in. Well, I remember when I was a student going to uh, Main Road because it was just round the corner from me. I'm not a hard man, that's for sure. And these kind of scally kids from nearby, from Moss Side, where it was, who were basically, you know, 15-year-old kind of Noel and Liam in the making kind of people, would come up and go, will you let me double through the turnstile with you? And I was fucking terrified of these teenagers. <laughs> I, th I thought you were the general, Josh. <laughs> the general was the, the head of the of Argyle's hooligan element. The well, they were called the central element, the TCU. Yeah. They don't really exist anymore. And were you there when there was a zoo behind the stand? I must have been. Yeah, there wasn't there a pathetic zoo. What's in the zoo? Well, I must have told this story before. That there's a. I was told the story by... Here's another local character from the 90s that we'll go to. By Gordon Sparks, that someone hit a wayward shot over the barn park end, and then they just heard an elephant kind of trumpeting. <laughs> <laughs> You've never told that story. <laughs> what? The implication being it hit the elephant? Yeah, the implication being it hit the elephant. <laughs> the yeah. elephant. 
elephant, elephant like... probably had better control than our players. Back then. <laughs> yeah, the elephant. The elephant was criticising the shot. If you've got a zoo behind the stand, I refuse to believe there's not cross promotion going on where they wheel the elephant out at half time. <laughs> it would have probably improved the conditions of the pitch. Yeah, but you talk about Gordon Sparks. I worked so Gordon Sparks, a legendary Radio Devon commentator, and he was working at Plymouth Sound Radio, and that was my first job. He was doing the breakfast show and I was a news reporter in what around 96, 97 and that was when Neil Warnock was at the club and that was amazing So I actually got an insight into what was going on behind the scenes which was pretty shoddy. Really? So talk us through that. So, so Neil Warnock was at the club 96 to 97, 98 maybe? Yeah I mean that was big news when he came because even then he was he was a big character and we had this quite nuts owner called Dan McCauley who was obviously sort of a local businessman who'd fallen out with Peter Shilton which I'm sure is probably quite easy to do and then even easier to fall out with Neil Warnock so I only only lasted a couple of seasons so paint the image of Dan McCauley because I'd say he is one of those definitive 90s chairman like Doug Ellis or you know those ones that are the big personality they hate the fans. Hate the fans but, and hate their own manager. You sign up Neil Warnock, you know what you're going to get and then start sort of criticising him openly. He'd sort of say to me, he was a sort of quite short bloke, Dan McCauley, but he was quite cheeky. He was a bit of a personality, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he had a big ego and when you've got two egos, that does not... So you'd interview Dan McCauley and Neil Warnock separately? Yeah, I'd, I'd interview them um, well, about various things, but... I remember Dan McCauley saying, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not here to fund Neil Warnock's champagne lifestyle. It's, well, well, yes, you are. You're, you're paying him big money to <laughs> yeah. do a good job at the club. And if he spends that money on champagne, that's down to Neil Warnock, surely. So, so was that an on-the-record quote he was giving you? I, I, don't think, I don't think it was. I think that was just right. when we were at a thing in passing. But they had a very public falling out. I remember when that was happening, I did a little interview after a game with Neil Warnock. That must have been after the promotion when things weren't going so well. So that would have been ninety, the ninety six ninety seven season, and Neil Warner just like aggressively sort of brushed it off. He's like didn't give a monkeys, and then he was sacked, and there was this big sort of scrum when Neil Warnock turned up at Home Park of an evening. I still still sort of remember that image and the TV cameras around, and he's like just turned up. I've been sacked. That's it. I think Dan McCauley just went. Well, I've had enough. So he just came out and was like, I've been sacked, and you all just stood there? Yeah, yeah, we, we were all sort of waiting for his comment, and um, I think we must have known that he'd been sacked, and he turned up at Home Park, and that was that was it. So he lasted, what, two, not even two seasons? Was he a nice guy to deal with, Neil Warnock? I didn't have loads of dealings with him, because I was a news reporter, so Sparksy, Gordon Sparks, was doing most of the sports stuff. But he was perfectly fine, and the fans absolutely loved him. Yeah, I've heard that. Josh, you've said that as well. Like, Plymouth loved Neil Warnock. There was a moment when he really endeared himself to Argyle, which was in the semi-final of the playoffs, when we lost 1-0 at Colchester, and then we came back to Home Park, and we were 2-1 up, I think. So it was 2-2 on aggregate. And he got sent off from the dugout, and he jumped into the crowd which was open terracing so he ju- he was just in the open terracing behind the dugout with all the fans around him for the rest of the game and that that image of him kind of just going oh well I won't go down the tunnel I'll just jump in at the terracing with the fans now I think really endeared him to the fans and then we won at Wembley 
which I think was the only time we've ever won at Wembley. It was the first time we'd gone to Wembley. I think it's the only time we've scored a goal at Wembley. It's the only time we've scored a goal at Wembley. And so I think that really endeared him to the fans. The football was fucking terrible. It was really bad. That playoff final was rubbish. I mean, obviously it was great. It was an amazing day out. There were about 40,000 Argyle fans. And when we scored, it was immense. Our scorer, Ronnie Moje, was um, a black player from London who came down to Plymouth. So he's been a massive supporter of the Jack Leslie campaign. And he is a real legend. But yeah, it was a terrible game. But he scored a great... In my head, that goal, Ronnie Moje sort of leaps and there's no one around him. I mean, it was a free header, yeah. but there was it was it was tougher than that. It was a um, yeah, it was a great moment. But that's kind of why Warnock was so loved. He then signed Bruce Grobola, which was insane as well, which I think was quite exciting. It was really exciting because he was you know obviously he was a massive name in the game, but he was also going through that whole match fixing yeah. case. I was still working at Plymouth Sound when he turned up so I interviewed Bruce Grobelaar when he first came to Home Park what was he like? it was amazing I was stood next to the Mayfair I remember it was a sunny day it was August and I turned up and I was like in my early 20s this bloke was massive when I got my microphone out I had to have my arm at full stretch to reach his face you know to, to interview me is he that... big? I don't yeah, picture I was him say, he's not that big is I thought he was a famously small maybe I'm very big. small I, I might be slightly <laughs> exaggerating it I was asking him about you know signing for Argon there and then I remember I had to ask him about the court case I was a news reporter I said well, how are you going to you know play with this hanging over you Bruce he looked down at me with the most intimidating face I'm going to do a terrible South African well Zimbabwean accent uh, 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 he just said, yeah, when we, when we get to court, we'll find out who the guilty parties are. And I just like looked back at him and went, OK, Bruce, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> but he was in court during the week and then playing for us at the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, but it was, it was, that was the sort of thing that would happen under Dan McCauley. You get, obviously, you had Shilton um Basically, we just signed celebrity goalkeepers. So talk Chris, yeah, talk Chris through the Peter Shilton years. We were playing better football, weren't we? We played great. Really, football. really incredible football. That widely seen as one of our best ever teams. That's not what I thought. I thought the Peter Shilton era was a disaster. We we had some real. I mean, some. I mean, you won't remember. We had this like really beautifully creative, cultured midfield player called Steve McCall, who who oh basically looked about fifty. You know what, what yeah. players. Back in the sort of 70s and 80s yeah, and yeah. early 90s. But he like. was about 50. He'd won the UEFA Cup in 1978 with Ipswich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was ancient, but he was still very good. He was better than everyone at that level. He never had to move. You know how they say good players have got more time on the ball? Well, yeah, he, he was great. And Steve Castle, who was just this driving midfielder, who scored a shitload of goals. Yeah, it, it was actually really good football to watch. And then it... We basically got to the final of the playoffs. No, no, semi-final of the playoffs, sorry. And lost to Burnley, who were 12 points below us. And then the next season, it just all went to shit. We signed a player called Peter Swan, who basically destroyed the whole mood of the dressing room single-handedly. <laughs> Well, swans, swans are very difficult. Are, yeah, he can break your arm. He, do you remember him? He was like a hard man who just kind of... And I think he's since written a memoir in which he details how much he hated Plymouth Argyle. <laughs> some players will just come and yeah, embrace Plymouth and absolutely love it, and some just can't bear it. 
there, there was a guy in Jack Leslie's time, um, Jack Hill, who was actually picked for England while at Argyle, but um, got injured. Um, so Argyle have never had a player capped for England while at the oh. club, but we came so close then. He wanted to get back up north and cause such a stink. He just forced the club and got the FA on board to get him out of it. And obviously, yeah, discombobulated the, the dressing room. That would happen a, a lot, I think, particularly when you're sort of, you've got players coming there a long way from home. They either love Plymouth or they hate it, I think. Chris, as someone from London, would you consider it a, an issue for a football club to be that far from, I was going to say civilization. that's a bit disingenuous, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's such a weird one with Plymouth. In a weird way, I feel you should be bigger than you are in terms of fan base because there's no one else. I mean, you are the biggest club for miles. And I know you have larger support than your kind of rivals in the local area. But shouldn't you still be even bigger than you are? I think so. There's a weird thing, isn't there? Well, we sell out every week now. This is a new thing for us. Yes, yeah. So we're selling 16,500 a week, which is pretty good. But, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? So the 90s is the exact example of when we could have kicked on. Because, so Dan McCauley came in, who was a local millionaire who'd made his money. It was like, he's going to invest a lot of money. I remember his big signing was a guy called Dave Regis, who was a striker, I think from Notts County, maybe. Do you remember how much we paid for him? A quarter of a million, maybe? But I remember the main... You need to check this because it sounds like I'm making it up. The main sell was that he was related to both Cyril Regis and John Regis, the 200 metres runner. (laughs) The implication being he's the best of both of them. (laughs) Imagine Cyril Regis with the pace of John Regis. But really what you're looking at is Cyril Regis with the control and skull scoring ability of John Regis. Just quickly, can I go back to that thing about why Plymouth are bigger? I'd like to posit my problems with Plymouth Argyle and why I think yeah. they've never really cracked on. Yeah. Firstly, green kit. Green. When has green kit ever worked for any football club in the world? Has there ever been a, a football club who really cracked on in green? Nigeria? Ireland? Yeah, again, you're just proving my point. There was talk <laughs> it back in the 20s because we, in the 20s, we were runner-up in the third division south six times in a row and that meant you didn't get promoted. <laughs> That's fucking depressing, isn't it? Six times in a row. The Jimmy White of the third division <laughs> south. Very much so. And um, there was talk then of us abandoning the green. Oh, was yeah. there? And what would we have gone for? White? I think that is one of the things I love about Plymouth, is that we're a different colour. But well, this is the thing. I think Plymouth are consistently presenting themselves as a backwater club. And when you look <laughs> the batch, the ship... When you live in the rest of the country and you're playing a football team who have a, a ship on their crest, you're like, That's who are great. these yokels? A symbol of, of Britain's global power. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a symbol of a backwards time when people were dying of scurvy. What, what do you want, like an iPhone? I would hate to use West Ham as an example, but the hammer is projecting power. A ship, where are you going? America. <laughs> well, that's true. You're going to take over America, spread disease amongst the native population. (laughs) Argyle. Argyle is a word. A lot of consonants consonants in there. And so I just find it peculiar. And it just, for me, the whole brand of the club is just odd. It's all that's what it's about. That's what people love about it. That's why you had to uh, abandon Thames Ironworks. Because there's too many (laughs) syllables for the East Londoners. (laughs) 
Argyle works well in a Plymouth accent. Also, Chris, uh, you won't be aware of this. There is a long-running debate. Well, it's not really a debate, but some people feel we should drop the Plymouth. Really? I've seen that debate on message boards. The arguments being everyone who knows them calls them Argyle. And also they represent the region rather than the, the city. Uh, do you know what? That's actually won me round that argument. Another argument is we'd be at the start of the alphabet, which I don't think is a good enough <laughs> argument. <laughs> that was always the thing with businesses in the 90s, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> to get, you need to be on the A. You need to be on Because people will just pick up the directory and look straight at A's. But more A's in Argyle. We'll change it to R. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Tinder. You matched, chatted, vibe checked. Now it's time to meet IRL. So what's stopping you? Tinder is making dating safer and easier with their excellent safety features. Like Share My Date, the best way to let your friends know your plans. While Moonlight allows you to discreetly call emergency services. And Are You Sure will prompt people to think twice before sending a potentially harmful message. Explore all of the possibilities for yourself. It starts with a swipe. Download Tinder today. Oh, let's run through the depressing decade of our guys. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty depressing, and, and it well, in, in many ways could continue to be. But it's still like fun to be had. Going to, I've actually got a ticket um, in front of me. That I found I was going through some stuff. Barnet away, of course, it was Barnet away. Yeah, in, of course. In 1994, I think it was. I think it was a nil-nil draw. And um, but one thing I remember, we had a, a history of signing, you know, celebrity goalkeepers, but also sort of quite crazy. We had this guy called Alan Nichols. Did you ever see him? Yeah, so he was he played for England under 21s or 18s or something. The fans loved him because he was a bit of a... He was a phenomenal keeper, but he was a bit of a psychopath. Yeah. I think one of their players was down. I can't remember why. Actually, like quite near the, the centre circle. And um, Alan Nichols strode over, looked at the Argyle fans over to the terrace, gave them a wave, and then made to, as if he was going to punch this guy who was injured on the ground. And all the Argyle fans went, yay! I mean, that would be straight red now. He was an absolute legend. He was a really brilliantly talented goalkeeper, and then he got dropped by Peter Shilton for Peter Shilton. <laughs> Is it not weird as well? Like you keep going for celebrity goalkeepers. It's like Shilton's coming. He's like the go- I want to be known for the goalkeeper position. That's where we're going to stand out as a team. <laughs> well, 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 one of our best players now is our young goalkeeper. It's, but he's actually good. Yeah, he is good. But and we've also had you know we had a French guy Romain Larrier who was phenomenal. Alan Nichols died at a really young age, didn't he? Not to bring the mood down, he was in a motorcycle crash. Yeah, tragic. It was such a bad decade for Plymouth. There was a period when half the ground was closed for health and safety reasons. Well, I broke that story. Did you? Wow. And, and it was it was assessed about how sort of shoddy the, the club was being run. They were really angry with me. I, I learned from a sort of contact that it sounds really benign, but it was the tannoy system that was broken. And, and the fact that they couldn't get, you know, fix the speakers meant that at half the a stand or something had to be closed, reducing the cap capacity massively. Because the tannoy was broken. The tannoy? Yeah, because you, you obviously you needed to be able to hear the announcements for health and safety. Oh, my God. Why didn't they just fix it? I, don't, I have no idea. It was, like, it was crazy. Surely that's not... You can just get, like, a mobile... Like, a speaker, no? What, like a Sonos? <laughs> like a megaphone just get a geezer with a megaphone well that that would have been the 1920s way to do it but no they had to they were forced to close a stand for quite a period I remember breaking that 
story when I was at Plymouth Sound and the, the Argyle chief exec, I can't remember his name, he was furious with me. But why? Because surely it was going to come out when the, st- when the stand was to close. <laughs> when you turn up for the game and you can't go go in, you've got to go to the... I think it was part of the Mayflower that was closed, wasn't it? Um, you've got to go to a different bit of the ground. Yeah. It was all kind of just porter cabins behind the stands. It was a, a bit shoddy. I mean, there still are porter cabin toilets, so, but it's, yeah. definitely, it's definitely better. And do you remember when the club fell out with the press, this might have included you, the press... It sounds so shoddy now, doesn't it, Chris? To you, to you, it must sound like this is a real amateur hour. This is what I imagine goes on now at Plymouth. Come on now, come <laughs> on. The press got banned from the ground, and so they hired a cherry picker and parked it in the car park next door. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a reporter for the Plymouth Herald, Chris Errington, who's still there. He's a lovely bloke, but he's, yeah. he's hardly... Someone that's going to rub you up the wrong way. Was this under Macaulay? Yeah. It must have been Macaulay. Yeah, it was under Macaulay, yeah. That's the kind of reaction he'd have, a, a tiny bit of criticism, like you're banned. And yeah, you had pictures on the front page of the Herald of Chris Errington in a cherry picker doing his reports. <laughs> but it's basically they got away with it. Like, Sir Alex Ferguson famously banned reporters from Old Trafford, but they never they never had the balls to go get a cherry picker and try and perch it over Old Trafford. The stands were too big at Old oh, Trafford. <laughs> There are gaps in the sides where you could get a cherry Imagine from three till five on a Saturday in November being on a cherry picker trying to take down notes on a match. Like how cold It's you... cold enough in the stand. Yeah. I find my respect for Chris Errington grows and grows. Do you reckon they came down at half time or do you think they're up there? For... <laughs> how long does it take to go up? Well, like someone working on a crane. You're up there for eight hours, I'm afraid. Because also, you can't get in the ground, so the nearest toilet's fucking miles away. Well, next time I see Chris Errington, I'll say, did you have to take a, a vessel up for yeah. your... Yeah. And do you remember, these are two more classic 90s incidents, that we have, uh, the Battle of Saltergate. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I wasn't there, but I remember... This was under Shilton, wasn't it? Um, no, 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 this was later. This was under um, Warnock, I think, or just after he'd gone. I was sure that it was, it was basically a tackle went onto our keeper. I was sure it was Shilton. Let me have a look. No, no, it was later because I was reading about it yesterday. Oh, you, you've done your research, haven't you? So it was during Chesterfield's FA Cup run. We played them in the league and it's the first time ever five players have been sent off in one league game. It was a celebrity, but it was Grobelar. Yeah. So a tackle went in on Grobelar in, in goal that was pretty aggressive. And then all the Argyle players got amongst it. I do remember yeah. the front page of the Herald and it's, we had this sort of big, tough defender called Tony James and the picture was just yeah. him with an outstretched arm with his fist lamping one of their yeah. players. There was basically a guy being boxed. You know, normally it's pushing and shoving. It was like someone was just being beaten up. It was insane. Four players got sent off and also one had already been sent off in the first half making five players. It was incredible, but we won two one away from home. And one of the one of the two Chesterfield players, if we ever got him on the pod, he'd be. I'd love to talk to him about this. Was Kevin Davis? He was one of the Chesterfield players that was sent off. Oh wow! Yeah, you can watch if you Google the Battle of Saltergate. There's a minute long YouTube video of the fight, and it's absolutely incredible. Wow! The other 
low moment of our 90s. Oh, no, that was, was a high moment, surely. Oh, that was a high moment, yeah. <laughs> oh, the team yeah, exactly. sticking up for each other. That was better than the quality of our football under Warnock. Yes, yeah. Apart from the elephant heading the ball back from the zoo. The other low moment was we were the team that let in the Jimmy Glass goal. Do you remember when Jimmy Glass oh, yeah. scored the last-minute goal to keep Carlisle in the league? That was against Plymouth Argyle. Well, that's what we like to do for other teams. That's how we ended the decade. <laughs> what a moment that was. He's mad to think about that now, isn't it? That he was on loan, wasn't he? And he came up and he scored... The goal to save the club. Did he stay at Carlisle? What was his career after that? It feels like everyone knows who Jimmy Glass is, isn't it? Like, he's such a... If you said Jimmy Glass to most football fans, they'd know who they were. He's got to have like a normal job now, hasn't he? Yeah, he never went back to Carlisle. He played. He only played three games at Carlisle. Retired at 27 years old. Did he? Yeah. So how old was he at that point? Oh, he was 26. He was a year off retirement. <laughs> he wrote an autobiography called One Hit Wonder. Yeah, I wonder what percentage of that autobiography is taken up by that goal. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot, because there's, the rest of it would be pretty thin, wouldn't it? Yeah, like his 95 games for Bournemouth, his 14 games on loan at Dulwich Hamlet. You'd have to really bring a taste for what it's like to be a lower league footballer for that, for it to work as an autobiography. He's currently general manager of Wimborne Town FC. Is he? Oh, good on him. He stayed in the game. He stayed in the game. Would you consider the 90s the worst decade in the history of Plymouth Argyle? I don't know if it's the worst. What comes close if it's not the worst? The last decade, I suppose, when we almost went under. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that was worse. But although there's more, there's something inspiring about the journey of the last decade that, that yeah. didn't exist. The, the 90s was just more up and down tedium. Then you had a decade yeah. of attempted but foolhardy glory in the championship and spanking all your money. And then the redemption. So the 90s was probably poorer, although there are lots of glorious memories sort of dotted within it. Yeah. Do you remember... Like I've, I've written down some things which I remember as particularly low moments. Neil Warnock insisting that we change the music we run out to to the best by Tina Turner. <laughs> that sort of thing is talked about now. It's... Because the, the, the team always ran out to Semper Fidelis, which is a... You know. Have you heard what Plymouth run out to, Skull? Because I think you're going to love this. What, now? It's not simply the best anymore. No, it was only for a year. This is our traditional song we run out to. It's kind of like Sports Report on BBC Five. Yeah, it isn't that? dissimilar the, 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 from Sports Report. The British Empire exhibition is about to begin. <laughs> Did people get excited by that? People love it. I might have that played at my funeral. <laughs> at least it is stirring as the team come out and there's, you know, Plymouth with yeah. its sort of military associations. Yeah, the, the ship. <laughs> as we've established. But, but you try something else and it does just feel cheesy. What do West Ham have? I'm from a blowing bubbles, mate. An anthem. No, I mean, I think it's better than, say, for Man U running out to the one by... um. This is the one by the Stone Roses. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, you need something that feels like it's been there for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And which is why I hate this new found Arsenal thing they started doing, trying to create culture. Well, we've started a really bad thing called the Janna Song, which I find 
absolutely cringe-inducing. A lot of people, there's a big debate in Plymouth as to whether that should or should not be sung. And it's because I've been going to a lot of home games recently. Obviously, I live in London and would usually go to more away games because of the campaign. I've been there a lot. And you feel like you have to join in because it does create an atmosphere. It's a lot it's, of debate as to whether it, it we should be, but I don't, I don't know. It's it is a bit cringy. Yeah, it's it's a, a Devon Cornish version of "You'll Never Walk Alone." That is. Can I just say the time to to mess about with songs is when the players come out for the second half. Do what you want, then. But the first time when they're coming out to start the game, that needs history, and you can't play with that for hundreds of years. No, but this is what we're trying to do with this Janna song: is it's played before the players come out. Like oh. you know, you'll never walk alone to get the crowd going. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Other low moments of the nineties when everyone fell out with Dan McCauley, the chairman, and covered up the sponsorship of his company on their shirts. I remember having brown parcel tape across my shirt to cover up the <laughs> rotor lock. Symbol. That'll learn him. Did yeah. you have one of those shirts? They were sort of dreadful, but are iconic now from the the playoff. No, I didn't have one, but they looked incredible, didn't they? It was a strange decade. What I want to ask Skull is, having heard this, do you wish you supported a smaller club? Absolutely not. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't consider West Ham a big club, really. I mean, we're not a big club. But compared to the likes of... That's not what you were saying when Declan Rice signed for Arsenal. (laughs) You were saying it's a sideways move. (laughs) But you realise when you have conversations like this that in the grand scheme of things, West Ham are a very big club and... um, I don't know. I, I do see the charm of supporting a team like Plymouth. I love like the stories you hear about the ground, and it's uh, it's way more amateurish than the existence I've had as a football fan. But there is a real charm to that, and I can well imagine, like Josh and Matt, when you meet other Plymouth fans, you have a bond that is not watered down by, you know, a massive football club with hundreds of thousands of global supporters. There's something very special about your relationship with the club, and I appreciate the charm of that. That's what very smart you to say. My not at all patronising. it's great that you have hobbies and that (laughs) but there is something genuine about that because the first time I heard about the Jack Leslie story was I was at a party and this guy said you've got to meet my dad he's an an Argyle fan he grew up in Plymouth so immediately you start talking to people and I I think I bumped into you at a thing Josh and my first thing was I'm an Argyle fan and and you just do because it it sparks something and those shared experiences that you've that you've had going to small grounds and then going to Wembley and mostly losing terribly. And Matt, the other question is, now that Plymouth are professionalised and good and facilities are nice, has it lost something? That's not to complain. I don't think it has because I think that the complaints about the atmosphere at home compared to away fans has always been the case. I mean, I do think the Devonport end, which is you know, the behind-the-goal home support, which was always the biggest and noisiest, it still yeah. is, but it has sort of dissipated a, a little bit. Yeah. Because obviously, when I started going, it was all standing, all the rest of it. But yeah. the away support for Plymouth is as big as it ever has been, if not bigger, and is as loud as ever. And I think that's a testament to the strength of the, the fans. But do you, do you wish that two of the stands were closed just because the tannoy wasn't working? <laughs> I, I wish I could get another exclusive. <laughs> Big scoop like that. 
A broken tannoy closing half the ground. Fucking pathetic. <laughs> that would be on your show with Nish Kumar, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, it would. In fact, I don't know um, why. You, you were down there in Middlesbrough, were you? I wasn't um, able to go in the ground. I was covering something else. I, we were covering Comic-Con next door and it was heartbreaking. You should have been covering my, my book signing that was partially washed out due to the inclement weather. Oh, for fuck's sake. I was so annoyed. It's been a pleasure, Matt. Thanks so much. We always end with the last question, which is, if you could go back to 1st of January 1990 and do the whole decade again as a Plymouth fan, would you? Well, of course I would, because there's no there's no other option. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Stay in the present day. Stay in the present day. It would be now, wouldn't it? I mean, now as yeah. a Plymouth fan is so much better. But without those hard times, would we be able to appreciate today? I'd be definitely yeah, be no. now. <laughs> I love that we're 19th in the championship. We're like, the great days are here. The great days are here. The Lion Who Never Roared by Jack Leslie, out now. Did I say by Jack Leslie? The Lion Who Never Roared, about Jack Leslie, by Matt Tiller. I, you know when you re-hear yourself? But there we go. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Josh, Chris, Michael. Thank you so much. That was Matt Tiller. His book, The Lion Who Never Roared, is out now. Now, shall we uh, end with a quiz? Let's do it. I can do this off the top of my head. This is easy for you guys. I'm not going to do first 11. I'm going to do anyone that played for Plymouth Argyle in the 90s. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe two. Okay. Chris, to start. Ronnie Moget. Great start. Bruce Grolar. Correct. Chris? Peter Shilton. Yes. <laughs> Do you know what? I'll broaden it out. Ever. <laughs> okay, ever. Dan Gosling. Dan Gosling, yeah, I'll give you that. Am I dreaming it or didn't Taribo West play for you? Correct, yes. Oh, that wouldn't have been during the 90s, though, yeah. but yeah. It's a good quiz, this, actually. We could do this with other small clubs. I don't think I've got another player. Uh, what was his name? Italian striker. Co- Cosarin? Carlo Cosarin? Carlo Carazin, correct. He was actually Canadian. Yes. He's back on Skull. No one thought Skull would mess this up. He was Canadian? Yeah. Hmm. I'm going to do my one. The one I've had in the bank the entire time. Kenny Brown. Kenny Brown, yeah. Plymouth Player of the Year, 1991, wasn't it? You can forget. I don't think I've got another player. I mean, short of trying to remember the very recent uh, Papa John's final. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you'll get any of the currents. Should I give you a couple that you could have got? Who's the one who could kick the ball really hard? He was on penalties for years. Paul Watton. Some you might have got, to quote Richard Osman. Out on pointless. Scott Sinclair you might have got. And... uh... No, Paul Mariner, the England striker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, we didn't even say Jack Leslie. Jack Leslie, of course. There you go. (laughs) That's a shame, isn't it? But there you go. That's the perfect end to uh, promoting the book. It's amazing when I actually think of it how few of the players you probably have heard of. I'm going to give you a choice of what we play out on, Josh. I'll let you choose between Semper Fidelis or simply the best, Tina Turner. What are you going with? Semper Fidelis every time. (laughs) Every time. Great tune. 
Here it is. A knockoff of BBC Radio 5's sports report theme. It's Emperor Fidelis. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Sal Tariq for this week's sign-off. And it is Got to Boot Ya, Batistuta. See you next week. Thank you.